he uh, became a Samanera when he was about 14 years old. So most of his life, you know, he's very lived under the Brahmacharya discipline. He never seemed to have any great worldly uh, longings. Like he, he was the kind of head monk of Sri Lanka for a while, but he he didn't like that. He didn't like being the the kind of Mahanayaka uh, because you end up doing all kinds of silly things that and having to solve petty little quarrels between this school and that school of these monks. And and he was really quite a too grand a man to spend his life just, <coughs> uh, you know, enjoying the prestigious position or, or uh, you know, feeling in any way connected to, to uh, a, a position such as, you know, the, the highest ranking monk in Sri Lanka. He... He didn't really find any great pleasure in those kind of titles. And yet he was given probably the highest titles any Buddhist monk could ever hope to get. And you look at the, the, his name when he died, Burma and Walker, Thailand had given him doctor's degrees and Agapandita titles and taking him to the most, the most ultimate uh, superlativist bestest uh, position of, of uh, praise and respect and so the Buddhist world even though he wasn't all that well known outside the Buddhist world he certainly uh, you know was he well deserved these titles but he was not really interested or, or really uh, cared about having them in any way he especially appreciated our respect for Vinaya because he could see in Sri Lanka that oftentimes the Vinaya was uh, not very well respected or kept and and so his, his uh, kind of great uh, fascination for us and for Lumpur Cha and that, that tradition was the uh, way we, we emphasized the Vinaya discipline. We also felt we were lacking in the Bariati Dhammas and and so he'd come and give us instructions on suttas and abhidhamma. And it's hard to keep keep an interest going, I must say, because uh, we'd end up going just to please him <laughs> to the classes. <laughs> because these, uh, uh, most of us that were Western people that gravitate towards Buddhism have usually had enough of uh, scholarship and are, are much more keen on practice. But now we, when we think right now that um, for those of us that knew him uh, personally, we have memories, I still have memories of him being here at Amarvati at Chitterst and meeting him. I went to uh, Ajahn Atapema and I visited him in Sri Lanka three years ago in Balangoda, which was his birthplace and where he was cremated. Uh, he loved books and he had he built this library uh, and had an enormous collection of books. 
and so he's, he's uh, really uh, had a, loved it. He just gave him a book, and it was make him so happy. And he had an interest in, in so many different things, uh, and uh, so he. The, and yet, for for many of us, the books are not uh, particularly things that we we don't really want to fill our minds with endless information on various on on the kind of details of human history. So I found myself almost at the end, uh, opposite end of the spectrum, because uh, my my approach has always been uh, rather non-scholastic and uh, very and practical, uh, and toward moving towards uh, uh, the, the emptiness of the mind rather than the uh, the refinement of intellectual uh, thought. And so I've always found Abhidhamma uh, something that never really attracted me or interested me because it, it just seemed to clutter the mind with endless, with more concepts than I really wanted to be bothered with. Because the simplicity of the Buddhist teaching, getting down to the conditioned and the unconditioned, uh, and uh, to, to get to that simplicity was more my, my aim than to to endlessly kind of uh, uh, in, take an interest in the permutations uh, and varieties of conditioned experience or conditioning. But in each one of us has, has to work out our karma accordingly. And so so uh, the emphasis that Lung Po Cha made on Vinaya I found very useful. Learning to live within boundaries, uh, learning to surrender to, to, uh, to you know, with mindfulness, say as, a, say as samanas, we have these boundaries. Play, we, we, when we ask to enter the monastic form, then we're entering into a limitation on what we can do and say. Now the, these boundaries are, you know, we choose them. We, we, we ask to enter. We're not, nobody's pushing us. Nobody is compelling us into this life. And so like when in monastic, when a, when a monk, uh, when a candidate for, for the bhikkhu life has to, he has to ask three times. I think Siladar is also three times before to get in, to be allowed in, uh, to be given the the dispensation of Bapacha or Upasampada. So this is uh, this is this is this is quite significant. The fact that we we choose it, so it's our choice. Like when you're in a in a pen, when you're in a limited situation, you can see you. The boundaries are, are, you know, you're observing the boundaries that you're in. For example, in this hall, in this, in this temple, you know, the the walls say are the boundaries. So you're looking, you have the freedom. Say, if you were going to be and choose to live inside this temple, then you'd you'd, you'd note the the limitation of it. 
uh, for mindfulness, observing that you can't go, go beyond the the walls, the windows, and the doors, and and so you learn how to find your peace of mind and your uh, happiness within the limitation, rather than endlessly try to get out and and kind of get outside it. So in in like with Vinaya discipline, you you're you, you look, you know, you, the Vinaya studies are to to make very conscious what the boundaries are, uh, what the what the the walls are around us, the fence, uh, and so that that we we you know we notice, we accept that because our aim isn't is no longer to try to get outside that, but to learn how to be content and surrender and relax within the restriction, uh, the restraint of our lives. You know, this is a life of renunciation where you, you're renouncing that kind of restless tendency to always, uh, you know, go on and on into other things. And you, you're here and then you want to be over there. And you're, you know, that, that kind of desire of always never being content with what you have or where you are or who you are but always thinking that you that, that the grass on the other side of the fence is greener or that the you know going the, the answer to your to solve your suffering now is to is to be able to go outside the boundary to go over there where 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 you where you're not supposed to go that uh where you've agreed not to go, then you find maybe happiness or fulfillment out there. But in uh, in reflection, we begin to see this this kind of what they call in Thai kanongai, this kind of outgoing exuberance, the way the mind's always going out into something, you know, seeking something else, somebody else, another monastery, another this or another place, and never never learning how to relax and rest in the present, to find contentment uh, and joy in the very state of being here, within the, within the, and and the sense of restriction then isn't, isn't like a a tyranny of just tying us down to a place in which we just have to resign ourselves in a negative way. It's a, it's a joyful kind of release of the mind, of the heart, where we we find contentment with 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 the peace of our with the peace of our own conscious mind. We find uh, a gratitude for for the dhamma and vinaya and the four requisites. So the, the real happiness comes from there, not from being able to do or go or, you know, just endlessly follow and fulfill all your desires because it never ends. You know, as soon as you fulfill your desires, then you want something else. And you, you're fed up with this place, you go to another, and then you're happy for a while, and you get fed up with that place. And you want to go someplace else. And you find somebody, you get... you. You like this person, and you want to be with them, and then after a while you get bored with them, then you want somebody else. And so it's, uh, 
uh, in this kind of restless, outgoing energies of the human mind uh, go on and on and on. So the resolution of that is through mindfulness. Simple, a simple life, a life based on simplicity, on gratitude, on dependence. Uh, we're learning to to learn how to depend on on things in, in the universe that are good and kind, and to to uh, uh, live in a society that is very competitive, and very materialistic, and very and encourages. This, this outgoing, restless energy, and yet not getting intimidated, not getting uh, blinded by that. When we think of Venerable Ananda Maitreya now, of course, we, we, we have the perception of death. He's dead. And so you can, you know, those of you who never met him or didn't know him, you know, then you have, you have, you've heard about him. You've heard us talk about him. You've heard other people. You've heard of his reputation. So that's the sanya, isn't it, of uh, some kind of perception in the mind. And now the added to that perception is the perception of death. He's dead. Now contemplate that. Just what the word "dead" does to your mind. You know what? When some, when you think somebody's alive, it's one way, and then when they're dead, that word "death" and "dead," and then what does it do to to you know in terms of your conscious experience? No, we, we reflect on that, that it's a, you know, that, that uh, when, when we think of somebody as, somebody that we knew that was alive is now dead. It's kind of, it's finished, and death is the end. Death is what we don't know. We haven't died, so we, we don't know. It's a, a mystery. It's something that we we know we will we will die. And so the the word itself is has a significance uh, uh, in terms of of in, in reflecting on this. And just the word has an impact on our, our emotions. That what we don't know. You know what happens when we die and when somebody's dead. Whereas, what where do you think Venerable Ananda Maitreya might be right now? Was he a stream enterer? Was he a once returner, non-returner, or an arhat? He told me he wanted to, to come back and be the future Buddha. So he was. For Theravadan, he was really a Theravadan disguised, you know, in a Theravadan robe, but had a Mahayana mind. He didn't want to be just an old arahant like the rest of us. 
that uh, wanted to become Maitreya Buddha. The, where, where do they, where people that uh, candidates for Maitreya Buddha go? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We don't know, do we? We don't know where we, you know, what happened. Right now, I mean, we can, we can, you know, have various views about rebirth and and all that. But um, you know, about being reborn, reincarnation. But right now, what is your state of mind in terms of? death and all I can come with is I don't know that's the only that's that's what happens when when that perception of death comes into my when I use it as a reflection but uh, there's a knowing that I don't know it's not stupidity is it it's not like Ignorance and stupidity—it's an—it's an—it's a knowing of not knowing. So, not knowing something in and, and that is like this, where where the uh, you know when you want to, if, do you think every when we die everything will be all right? You know, say, or everything just disappears into a void, or. Or will we get punished for the bad things we've done in this life? Or what? Don't know. So not knowing is also recognized as a mental state in the present. As we we don't, you know, we're not trying to to know something that we can't know. We we're knowing what we can, what we know now, and what we don't know now. And the, direct knowledge. We know the perception of death is uh, something that is a perception. It's a word, isn't it? Take the word death and then uh, it's, it's, and, and we have that word and then we have this reaction when we think the word death. This is, this is what the way it is. When we think of the word life, what happens? Life. is the opposite of death. Life is, you say, I want to live. Life is this way. You know, life is, we can think of it in positive way, of being, you know, a lot of love and happiness and joy and pleasure and goodness and fulfillment and Adventures and romances and excitement and so forth. Life is, life is a banquet. And all those suckers are starving. I was in a, in a movie back in the fifties. <laughs> Called Auntie Mame. The kind of high powered, uh, uh, lively lady that that, uh, that that 
Life is a banquet and all the all you suckers are starving. <clears throat> so life and, and is this sense of, you know, in terms of you know, being we we in some ways we can we the mind go goes off into fantasies of life, fulfillment, pleasure, happiness, fame and fortune, death. Non plus is the thinking mind, isn't it? Fantasy world packs up like a void, like nothing. And then life or if you're pessimistic and you're thinking of life is really a drag, you know, full of suffering, and all you do is get old, get sick, and die, and have to put up with endless frustrations and the pettiness of people's problems and the and the you know the the political systems and the economic problems and the social problems and the personal problems and the life is is really dreary and I don't want to come back into life and I don't just want to disappear into a void oblivion but at least you know life does have have you know it's, it's either pleasure or pain or happiness or suffering and so it's it's uh, it, the word life is also a perception and when we think the word life the mind easily takes off into various optimistic or pessimistic thoughts. So when we inspire and, and we talk about eternal life or, or uh, life where we fulfilled everything we get, everything we want, we get. We're fulfilled, fulfilled. We, we, we're fulfilled by our life. And so life has this, just observing the power of words and how they, you know, how they, how they affect emotionally, affect us emotionally in the mind. But then when the words and the fantasy stop, there's the silence, isn't there? There's, there's we're, in, in the Buddhist teaching, the emphasis is pointing to this this attention before words arise, before thoughts. So, in the, in the word death, in the word death oftentimes stops thinking, so that's useful. Or or, or doubting, where what happens? You know, who am I? These kind of questions and and doubting tendencies of the mind stop the thinking mind for a moment and you're really uh, knowing that non-thinking mind is like this so you're beginning to to recognize or realize in yourself uh, an awareness and a wisdom that transcends your cultural conditioning or your intellectual uh, development or your emotional habits, because this pure awareness is not—it's not—it's aware of the emotion, a mood of of uh, the feeling, but it's not—it's not the feeling or the mood. It's aware of it. So we see. 
So we we rest in this awareness. And so when when we want to go outside the boundaries of monasticism, then we're we can be aware of that desire to escape or get beyond. And that's all that's necessary is to just the trust in your ability to be aware of what you're feeling, of your emotional habits that are operating right now, and to see them in terms of what they that they are this way, but that you're noting the impermanent nature of them. It's changing, the Nietzsche. So in uh, restriction and restraint in morality, uh, sila, and the convention and tradition that we use, we're using it for mindfulness, not for for uh, just re- just uh, conditioning you to become a monk or a nun or a Theravadan Buddhist or anything like that. You know, the difference would lie in that if, if we're, you know, we were, if I, we were trying to condition you so that you become a Buddhist monk or Buddhist nun, then, then we'd have to, you'd have to believe in certain things. And you'd have to, you, you, you have, you'd affirm the tradition. You'd, you, uh, you shouldn't doubt it. Uh, we'd have maybe ways of talking in which we, we put down other traditions and and that always makes us sound so, you know, like we're superior. Or we'd have certain things that, you know, we're not allowed to think, that you shouldn't be thinking. And that, that, like in in any kind of cult, isn't it, uh, there's always this affirmation taking place. We all kind of affirm the beliefs, the basic beliefs, the party line. So then you become, you know, that's a state of becoming, you become a member of a group, you you become, uh, you, you take on their uh, philosophy and their tradition, and you become that way. That's, that's using tradition as for for becoming something, but in in the well in the Buddhist practice, it's not to become, but to awaken to the the that tendency to become, like Bawadana Vipawadana observes. We're investigating the three kinds of desire: desire for sense pleasures. Like sort of sense pleasures, you know, we we can't eat dinner anymore. Uh, after the noon meal, then we have to uh, we can't have have uh, have a, have a meal. 
And so that's, that's just the, agree, the agreement in regards to food. But we might want, you know, we might still feel hungry and, and fantasize and long for and want to eat something in the evening. But then we're aware of that as, as, a, as, a, as a condition of the mind. We're beginning to, to recognize that, that hunger, the feeling of hunger, how it conditions thinking, the thoughts that arise, the emotions that come out of the, the feeling of being hungry in the body. You're, you're investigating that. You're noticing the impermanence of it. So you're, you're awakening yourself to what you're actually feeling. Rather than 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 uh, feeling that you shouldn't, you know that that uh, you know that you shouldn't long for food or want to eat. The agreement is not to. So we, so that's what we abide by. But then, in terms of action, then but in terms of reflection, we're aware of what, of what we are feeling. What's going on? So we have models of, you know, um, good monks who keep the Vinaya, who, you know, who are unselfish and they, they, uh, they practice hard and they, they don't uh, do things outside the restrictions and. We have inspiring models of what good monks are. And then in the Vinaya, when you study Vinaya, then you have these, uh, these monks that they use, what was it, Upananda, who taught, uh, the body <laughs> Upananda was the monk that, uh, uh, was always, you know, doing something wrong exploiting the lay people when they gave Pavarana or, you know, sneaking out and bartering rice for something and, and then Buddha would end up having to make a rule about this. So you got the kind of bad monks and good monks. So, but these are, these are conventions uh, to, to give you on the level of a convention, conv- uh, use of convention, what is what is admirable and noble and praiseworthy and what isn't. But in terms of what you're actually feeling, then you, we're not judging according to values about what you're feeling. You're just noticing what you're feeling is like this. So if you feel more like Upananda than, say, Ananda, then you... (laughs) You know, you you want to go out and and uh, do a McDonald's, <laughs> and and that then then uh, you're you know you can use it as some kind of value judgment uh, about you're not very good monk if because you, you have all these fantasies or you're you're willing to see this this kind of feeling is is like this. And it's always the, the, it's changing from interpreting in a personal way, uh, as some kind of personal weakness or failure to 
seen it in terms of what it is as it is in the present is it is changing condition and then it's something we don't do because of the we, we've, we've contemplated the boundary of our lives the, the limits that we've agreed to to use for action and speech so it is a, you know if you use it skillfully it's a very very uh, you know it's a very uh, marvelous tool Buddhist monasticism if, if used rightly because it uh, it helps in so many ways to center yourself, to ground yourself, to be able to to get some kind of perspective on your on on thought and on your emotional world and habit in a way that is not uh, you know increasing the amount of ignorance or just kind of changing costumes. This isn't like you know, a, a costume that we wear um, in order to look different from lay people. But even the, the 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 appearance, the saffron robe, the shaven head, is is used as a reflection. You know, it's the, it reflects our, our personal feelings, our vanity, our sense of ourself as a personality. Isn't it to be a a Buddhist samana in in a country like this, you, you're a bit, you're always on the edge of things. You're the freaky fringe, where the 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 odd ones out, who stand out in the crowd, and so that brings up this sense of self self consciousness, and and that also, which is seen in terms of impermanence rather than in terms of a personal problem. So refuge in Sangha then is is in this uh, the, like Sangha is uh, then it's not personal it's not it's not my it's not Sumato's Sangha it's not my interpretation of Sangha and it's not not um, you know it's not kind of my idea. It's a uh, it's something that I'm surrendered to. So it's 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 uh, and if we all surrender to this, then then the sangha is it doesn't doesn't have it's not anybody's it's not personal. So you have this sense more of the supatipano, those who practice in the right way. And it's transcending personal, uh, our personalities, our cultural backgrounds, our educational qualifications, our race, sex, class, all these things are, are no longer... Uh, our refuge in any way, but the, the the refuge in sangha helps to reflect those kind of attachments, those identities of being a person, a personality, an individual, a, a particular uh, uh, class or race, gender. These things are then seen in terms of 
perception that arise and cease in the present other than as as uh, permanent qualities that we have and identify with. So somebody like Venerable Ananda Maitre, very, you know, has special, you know, living a hundred and two years, certainly special. You know, not many people live so long. Or, and so skillfully. And that very few human beings have lived, you know, celibacy for, for, you know, 85 years or so. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? To, to have, have lived as a celibate life for 85 years. Though, I mean, just to, to give up the, 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 the kind of curiosities of, that you have when you're young around sexuality and because of maybe some great faith and, and, uh, Sada that one has in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and that that's, shows very high, you know, high, uh, of, of, um, you know, from the very beginning, Venerable Nandamatraya must have been very, kind of, very pure-hearted, kind of child, and so we we find, you know, and we we. We think, we, but if you start thinking of it personally, like, well, I wasn't very pure-hearted when I was a child, and uh, I didn't, you know, I ordained when I was thirty-two, so I didn't, you know, I didn't exactly uh, have, you know, compare myself with with Venerable Nanda Maitreya, then that brings up the ego again, me and him. But when we think of the goodness of somebody's life, rejoicing in the goodness. Uh, and we think of Venerable Ananda Maitri, the goodness of his life, you know, a very unselfish monk that gave a lot to, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of people, was a, was a great inspiration for the nation of Sri Lanka and many others, and uh, who's, who loved the good, who, you know, who really praised us for our respect for Vinaya and for our meditation practice, who, whose relationship to us was, was one of uh, a continuous encouragement and, and an eagerness to help us. Well, Nanda Maitreya was like that. He was always eager, enthusiastic to help us in any way that he could or encourage us in our lives. And so we think of someone like that. We, we uh, I feel the sense of of rejoicing in the goodness of of his of his goodness. Uh, to, in his, to rejoice in his goodness, because it, it it shows you know that the human heart is is really basically very good. That the. Like why all of us are here? Why? Because of that. There's something in us that really wants to be good and loves the good and the true. What's true? What's beautiful? <clears throat> so that it, it it we're reaching 
uh, that which is truly good in the human heart. We're we're reminding ourselves, reminding each other of that. And this is very important because... uh, it's, it's so easy to, to see what's wrong, isn't it? To, to be aware of, we're so aware of what's wrong with somebody. And what we don't like about them, and that has become such a, a dominant perception in the mind. So that the, the rejoicing the goodness is is it you know when uh, you know I find I personally have to cultivate this because I'm quite conditioned to to be very much aware of what's wrong with myself or with others but observing that you know over the years observing that tendency to to always kind of zero in on what's wrong and and exaggerate what's wrong only you know it never ceases you just going from one wrong thing to another wrong thing. You get depressed, you get pessimistic, you get cynical that way. You destroy yourself, in other words. You destroy your life through that endless, you know, endless obsession about what's wrong. So, so that the, what, so rejoicing in the goodness and the good actions performed by human beings is uh, is, uh, is is to be cultivated, and, and to be to be grateful uh, for the good things that people do for us. So we do that sense of gratitude, gratitude for the for the generosity that we receive as summoners and. The, the goodness, the the goodness of our life here in England, you know, the rejoice in the goodness of this country, uh, and and uh, rather than uh, pick out what we don't like about it and endlessly, you know, make a case about what's wrong with this country, or with each other, you know, try to reflect on, you know, the. Personally, maybe we don't, we find each other irritating or frustrating or threatening in various ways, and that's on one level. But why are we here? You know, because of our goodness. And so we, 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 we remember that, and have to quite determined to remember that. to make that a kind of ajitana, to remember that, and to rejoice in the goodness, rather than to to get obsessed with uh, what we don't like about uh, somebody. Grateful to to be aware 
Uh, and and as this this has an effect on your consciousness, then you, you find it, the joy of of the present moment. Quite, you don't really need very much. You don't need to to get everything or do everything or try everything out or endlessly kind of run around trying to you know. Uh, do things, do other things, or have other adventures, because the 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 what you find is is a is the real uh, bliss is in the present, in the state of contentment and uh, mindfulness, and uh, and a way of rejoicing in the goodness of our lives. So the, this generation of, I think of, you know, the Lung Pacha death and Ajahn Buddha Dasa's death, now Venerable Ananda Maitri is dead. They, these monks that I held very highly, they were teachers, uh, superlative teachers, uh, human beings that I knew. Now they're dead, but also, you know, one realizes that that um, body dies. You know, the perception of death is like this: that the that the uh, real practice is in the not in in uh, in uh, worshiping dead teachers or or in uh, you know. Feeling, you know, feeling restricted around loss, but in awakening. That's because this is what all three of those monks were encouraging, this awakening. That's what the Buddha, yeah, that's what the Buddha's teaching, the awakened one, isn't it? Gautama the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha. He wasn't you know, he wasn't pointing to himself and saying, when, "You know, I'm 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 a Buddha, and when I go, you know, that's uh, that's it means that you know, there's nothing. You know, all you've got left is a memory. But him pointing to the dumb, he says, "I leave this dumb in there," and so we have that. You know, that's something that has been handed down through monastic tradition, isn't it? As it as it survives in one generation and passes on to the next. So that generation, say the Venerable Maitri, exemplifies a generation of, of Buddhist monks, Theravadan Buddhist monks of the, you know, he he was born in the 19th century, which to most of you is probably, you know, like ancient history. 1896. It wasn't all that long ago. 
You know, I, my father was born in 1897. And, so, <laughs> and, uh, and yet to me that seems like a whole different world, you know, the, the, the world of America or Europe in 1896. You know, the British Empire was at its kind of peak then. And, and Sri Lanka was a colony. Ceylon was a colony of the British. He was born at the time of the kind of the, the kind of peak, uh, the 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 grand moment where Britain was was at was at its very best as an empire, in its power and its presence and its uh, impressiveness. And then uh, in his lifetime he saw it all kind of fall apart. You know, no doubt caught up in all the nationalist movements of Sri Lanka and Sinhalese nationalism and so forth. And yet he never, never was politically minded. And he never was anti-British or never heard him say anything, you know, slightly negative or or uh, critical, but in either you know towards anyone, but but uh, he certainly saw you know in, in his lifetime uh, quite a significant change take place, and then seeing his own country kind of get caught in an, in an unsolvable war that goes on endlessly for. For no good reason other than just because of pride and ignorance and stupidity. The very things he was, was pointing, you know, he was trying to, to emphasize, to get beyond these ethnic hatreds and political rivalries and resentments and that. That's what, and yet Buddhism can be used as a, as a kind of nationalist religion you know like the Tamils are Hindus and the Sinhalese are Buddhists and though you can you can get attached to Buddhism as, as our religion and and uh, we're not Hindus and that kind of thing so and that's not that's not what the Buddha was teaching wasn't to to take pride and and being attached to to being a Buddhist but in using the Buddhist teachings for awakening the mind, that this uh, supatipano, the one who practices in the right way, so Nandamatraya, Nandamatraya saw the end of the British Empire and the liberation of Sri Lanka from from the colonial period and the uh, First World War, the Second World War and, the, and all the other wars that have taken place. There's quite a, you know, a century that has been very violent. So the uh, rise of communism, the Russian Revolution, the, the the, you know, Lenin and so forth uh, 
and the call and 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 saw the whole expanse of the Cold War from its beginning, from from the Communist Revolution to to the to the Cold War after the Second World War, and then the end, then the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I mean, it, the seeing the the in the beginning of a movement and its collapse, plus the the ending of 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 an empire. So, in terms of history, historical significance, this century has been kind of action-packed, full of sudden changes and and uh, you know the industrial revolution and and war and and modern science and and the atomic bomb and all the rest the, seeing the, the the you know how humanity uh, acts out of ignorance that we even though we've got this potential for goodness and our where our true nature is pure yet we get lost so quickly in, in in desires to destroy what we don't like. We can be so be easily influenced, you know, to, to believe in 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 racial prejudices or cultural biases. We're so we're so willing to go along with with. Uh, Demagoguery and with blaming, with biases, with with, with uh, ethnic hatreds, and 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 yet, uh, and and we're willing to destroy each other and each other's country. And we think of the First World War. What a horrible war that was, and how. You know, stupid it was. There was no need for it, and it uh, and it was just an endless kind of attrition. You know, just of 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 a horrible mutilation of a generation of men, European men, and a in a mindless destruction. Then the Second World War was the same thing. Where the Europeans managed to destroy each other's cities and kill each other's people for what? Because of this ignorance and and uh, because they they they're so easily influenced by uh, conditions by strong-minded people by tyrants uh, by emotional. Stirring up people emotionally. People, you know, if you're not awake and you're not, if you have no awareness of your life, then you can be easily manipulated. What, what demagoguery is, isn't it? A demagogue manages to, you know, knows how to tune into you to make you do what he wants. How to make you laugh, how to make you cry, how to make you angry, how to make you indignant. Just by, Pressing the the right buttons and getting you to, you know, just exploiting masses of people uh, in an unscrupulous way. So we can be very stupid and very uh, lost creatures. 
And it's easy to paint a very cynical picture, a very kind of dreary and and uh, despairing picture of, of human beings in general. So we are aware of that, you know, uh, and of our own ability to be easily influenced by somebody. But awakening to that, isn't it? Awakening to that, how, how things affect us. We're not trying to cut ourselves off from demagogues and strong-minded people or evil forces. We're, we're, we're looking at them as we're feeling them. We're seeing the impermanence. We're in, in this willingness to, to observe, to awaken to what we're feeling, and then we, we, we're finding a, our, our true nature, that ultimate purity, which is our true nature, which is our refuge. So this is the, this is the great gift we have as human beings. This is a potential that we all have in which when we rejoice in that potential, even in human beings who are totally unaware of it, it's still, you know, I find it more helpful to, to remember that about human beings rather than to, to, uh, to keep uh, kind of reinforcing the, the ideas about them as being, you know, bad or inferior or evil or criminals or Degenerates or whatever that doesn't that doesn't uh, help or doesn't help anyone to just uh, keep uh, keep holding to those perceptions. And sometimes you know, and you remember uh, when I was a, a, a child when I was about twelve years old. I remember I I became very depressed. And um, and I don't I don't know why I was so depressed, but I got so depressed when I was twelve that I couldn't study anymore. I couldn't. I I was I became where well, I'd been a very good student in school. In that year, I I couldn't. I I lost my ability to to learn. And uh, so when we we changed schools when I was thirteen, I was sent to a. a uh, uh, another, another school, and uh, and I was so, uh, so depressed at the time I couldn't pass the entrance examination. So they put me in this class of very slow uh, students. So and that made me even more depressed. And so. Um, so then I was in this class of students, uh, you know, they're all kind of retarded uh, people. Maybe they were depressed like I was, I don't know. But, but it <laughs> but the teacher was quite a sharp person, you know, and she, she, said, uh, she said to me, you know, you're not trying. You know, you you've got a very good mind, but you don't try. You should try harder. And just that, 
just the fact that the teacher said that to me. Suddenly, she saw in me, you know, that potential. So that that, that set me going. Once I had some some uh, kind of encouragement and hope, then I could I could I got out of that depression. So I always felt tremendous gratitude to that teacher <laughs> because uh, uh, just that just a little something like that an encouragement from a teacher made uh, you know started me you know got me going again gave me that 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 kind of hope and inspiration to uh, to put effort into what I was doing into schoolwork into studying So you see, in in the human society, you know, so many people are depressed and they're just lost, and you know, with hopeless images of themselves, with with feelings of of their own uh, worthlessness or failures, and they just sink into these negative states, and then. Then, then you know they take drugs or drink, and then they end up doing things that make them even hate themselves even more, and and uh, it goes on into you know uh, just a, a sense of depression and despair with one's life. So it's very you know to, for for all of us to to see you know in our own life you know, that that. That the qualities that bring us joy aren't, you know, you know, being successful and being the best can kind of make you momentarily feel good, you know, like winning a prize or getting a title or or being praised by somebody. But what really is lasting isn't aren't worldly titles or praise or successes, but understanding and knowing things as they really are and being able to to really uh, find that peace and contentment that is quite natural to us uh, and that isn't personal and dependent upon conditions being supportive for that. So this evening... uh, I think what is it? We'll, we have a tape of Venerable Ananda Maitreya, which we thought we'd play around what ten forty-five. For those of you who want to hear him on tape, hear his voice, hear his teaching. Ten forty-five here in the temple, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, sit till midnight. Is our custom.